Well, a few things have changed since I was your pastor. <clears throat> I have a large print Bible now. That's the change. I always tell everybody that that's because, you know, I can see it from further away. You know, I can, like I can be here and I can still read it. And that's partially true. The other part is, you know, my eyes just keep getting worse and worse. Every time I go to the eye doctor, they say, you know, there's a change from last year. And I'm thinking, really, that's why I'm here. Because there's a change from last year. But thank you for the opportunity. Man, the new church, I've driven by it several times. It's my first time, my first opportunity to come back and uh, meet with you in your, in your new church. And man, it's, as I came in, I saw lots of familiar faces. As I said, I missed some that, uh, that have left us. They're having more worship than we are right now. But thank you for the opportunity. As I speak in churches, one of the things that I like to do is I like to thank you for giving. I'm not here to ask you for money. As Southern Baptists, we don't work that way. You know, um, I'm not here to ask you for money. I'm here to thank you for giving. So uh, thank you that you continue to give and we're able to do what we do. Those pictures you saw, those people with Bibles, we're able to do that because you continue to give faithfully to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and to the cooperative program. So thank you. Now, let's begin. Several years ago, I decided I was going to do a study. You know, we, we, we sometimes struggle in our quiet times, don't we? Has anybody, has anybody here ever struggled in a quiet time? You know, sometimes it's easy, you know, and you just jump into it, and man, you, you spend some time in the Word, and it's like an hour that you spend in the Word, and you look up, and oh, now I'm late for something. But other times, it's just tough, isn't it? It's tough. You know, you spend five minutes, and you think you're done, and you think, Oh, man, it's only been five minutes. I feel kind of guilty about that. You know, so I'm here to tell you, sometimes missionaries struggle in their quiet time. I know pastors don't. But missionaries sometimes struggle in their quiet time. Anybody ever struggled in your prayer life? Man, I'm here to tell you, sometimes my prayer life stinks. Sometimes it's just terrible. So I decided, I was beginning a new time, you know, I'd kind of finished up what I was doing, and I decided I'm going to go back to the Lord's Prayer, and I'm going to spend my quiet time in the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to do like a phrase a day, a verse a day, I'm going to do that. So it began with, our Father who art in heaven. Man, I was good with that, you know, 20, 25 minutes I spent on, on who God is, and, and that, he's, that He's in heaven, and He's my Father, and man, I was good with that. The next day, Hallowed is your name. Man, I was good with the holiness of God. I was good with God being holy, and I spent some time dwelling on the holiness of God, and I began to understand I don't really know a lot about the holiness of God because everything I have is from a human perspective. So understanding the holiness of God has to be a lifetime pursuit, but I'm good with that. I've known that for a long time. I'm never going to truly understand the holiness of God. The third day, I got to the next phrase. I'm going to tell you, it messed me up for a while. The next phrase is, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So I begin to think about, and I begin to pray, and I begin to think about what in the world is the kingdom of God like? You know, Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, when I was in seminary, I had to write a 25-page paper on the kingdom of God out of the book of Matthew. 
When the professor assigned that on the first day of class, he said, you're going to have a paper due in this class. It's going to be on the kingdom of God. It's going to be 25 pages long from the book of Matthew. And I thought, well, first of all, anytime a professor said that there was going to be a paper due in the class, my neck immediately began to hurt. And he said 25 pages, and I, like, started sweating. When I finished the paper, it was 28 pages. And I began to understand really just scratching the surface on the kingdom of God. I was reminded of that as I went back and looked in Matthew chapter 6. I was reminded of, of, of really that trying to wrestle with the kingdom of God. So I began to do some other study on the kingdom of God, and it led me to some places. That's where we're going to begin today. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look very quickly at three parables. Because what I want us to do today is I want us to walk away with a little better understanding of the kingdom of God. And with that understanding, this question, how do we position ourselves to be used for God's glory in his kingdom? That's, that's what we're going to really do today. So we're going to look at these three parables because I think... First of all, they're consecutive, and they're really easy for all of us to go to and stay in the same place. But they really teach us three quick things about the kingdom of God that really encourage me, and I hope they encourage you as we look at those things. Then we're going to move to, okay, how do we position ourselves? How do we get, how do we get ready to be used by God in his kingdom for his glory? So we're in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. This parable is one verse. And it says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, parables are funny things. Parables can be really, really simple, or you can really dig into them, and you can spend a lot of time in them discussing and finding out what all those things mean. We're not going to do that this morning. We're going to say this parable has one meaning. You know, Scripture always has one meaning. There are many interpretations, not many interpretations. There's one meaning. There are many applications for Scripture. But we're going to say, what is the basic meaning of this parable? And the basic meaning of this parable is the kingdom's valuable, right? The kingdom of God is valuable. In fact, it's so valuable, Jesus says that a man sold everything he had because he had found a treasure in a field. Now, see, here's where you can, where you can get, get off in this, in this passage. You can get off and why was the man in the field? What was he doing? How did he find the treasure? The people I work with are called the Basutu. They um, have a tendency to focus on small things. When I taught this parable to, to my pastors that I train, one of them said, I have a question. He said, I said, what's that? He said, why did he buy the whole field? Why didn't he just buy the little section that had the treasure in it? And I said, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the parable. The parable is teaching us that the kingdom of God is valuable. How valuable is it? Well, let me tell you how this works out in Lesotho. In Lesotho, I don't ask people to raise their hand if they want to follow Jesus. Because I'm a guest in their country. They're very, very hospitable people. So if I ask them, do you, do you want to follow Jesus, raise your hand, every single one of them will do that. Why? 
because they're hospitable people. They want me to feel welcome. That's what they think I want them to do. If I say, will you repeat a prayer? They will all repeat a prayer. And it will make absolutely zero difference in their lives. So here's what we do. I say, we get to the end of the thing, I'm going to say, here in just a minute, I'm going to take prayer requests. And after we pray, if you're ready to commit your life to following Jesus, we always put it that way, commit your life to following Jesus. Then after we pray, you come find me and that's what you tell me. I'm ready to commit my life to following Jesus. So we take prayer requests, we pray. Usually those prayer requests involve peace in the families, love in the village, um, things that they're afraid of. Almost every village, they'll talk about those same things. So after I pray, I'll go find my, I'll go make myself not hard to find, but they got to make some effort. You know, I don't go hide in somebody's house, but I may go stand on the other side of their house. They've got to be looking for me. Why? Because the scripture teaches me the kingdom of God is valuable. So when they come to me and they say, I'm ready to follow Jesus, here's what I say. You're ready to follow Jesus. They say, which means, yes, Father. Father is a term of respect. It's, what they, it's like us using sir. That means yes. I say, okay, if you're ready to commit your life to following Jesus, this is what it means. It means you will no longer go to the graves to pray. Because they worship the ancestors. They go to the cemetery and that's where they pray. It means no longer will you sacrifice to the ancestors. They still do animal sacrifices to the ancestors. No longer will you go to the Sangoma. That's our word for witch doctor. No longer will you go there. And here's the last one. And if you're wearing any charms right now, I'm going to ask you to cut them off and hand them to me. You know what I see sometimes? When I say that last thing, they go, ooh, wasn't really counting on that one. And they begin to walk away. Had a big pastor from Alabama. Man, this guy, he's about six foot five. He probably weighs 280 pounds. And his hands are like the size of, I don't know, what's, what's the old saying? The size of hams, right? He was standing by me one day when I did that. I had had 12 people come and say, we're ready to commit our lives to following Jesus. Four of them turned to walk away. He put his big old hand on my shoulder and squeezed just a little bit. And he said in my ear, Jim, you're not going to let them walk away, are you? I said, I sure am. See, they don't understand the value of the kingdom. If we really understand the value of the kingdom, if we really understand what Jesus Christ has done for us, if we understand that we are sinful, we have no hope outside of Jesus. If we understand that we are separated from God and our only hope for reconciliation is through faith in Jesus Christ who died on a cross for our sins, when we understand that, we see the value of the kingdom, we see the value of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, we're not going to have a problem cutting off a charm. I was able to email him the next week and say, three of those four handed me their charms today. You know, they came back that week, they counted the cost, and they came back, and they, the, the Lord, through the, the working of the Holy Spirit, showed them the kingdom of God is valuable. And I'm willing to give up whatever it takes. You see, they wear those charms because they believe in an all-powerful creator God. I don't have to, I don't have to convince them there is a God. I don't have to convince them that the Bible is the word of God. We don't, that's a battle we don't have to fight. But for them to turn away from everything they've known 
and everything they've trusted is difficult. So sometimes it takes some times, multiple times of sharing the gospel with them before they see the value of the kingdom. Look at the next parable. Verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what's the main teaching of that parable? See, most, most of the time people will say, well, that's the same thing. It's the teaching of the kingdom of God is valuable. No, it's not. That's not the teaching of that parable. See, there's a, there's a cult that has a whole book that's, that's based on the misinterpretation of this scripture. The book is called The Pearl of Great Price. Y'all ever heard of that? Okay, here's the problem. Listen to what this parable says. Listen closely. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. See, the kingdom's not the pearl in this parable. The kingdom is the merchant. The kingdom is the merchant. So what does that mean? That means the kingdom is seeking. What is it seeking? It's seeking pearls. It's seeking fine pearls. You know what that makes us? That makes us the, the valuable thing in this parable. We're the pearls. But the kingdom is seeking us. Man, can, can we draw encouragement from that? As you go out from day to day, where you work, where you go to school, where you live, where you go to the store, as you meet people and you seek to get into gospel conversations with them, can we draw encouragement knowing that the kingdom of God is valuable and people should be willing to give some things up to be part of the kingdom of God and that the kingdom of God is seeking, that it's doing its work as we're working. Isn't that an amazing thing, the way God does that? God could do anything to lead people to Jesus. Y'all probably heard me say this before. He could, send, he could send a 10-foot-tall angel. Let's make it bigger. He could send a 50-foot-tall angel and drop him in the middle of I-44 with a 15-foot with a flaming sword, drive it into the ground and say, you need Jesus. He could do that. But he doesn't. He uses people like us. Now, it seems to me that it would be much more efficient to do it the other way. Much more effective to do it the other way. But that's not how he's chosen to do it. He's chosen to use people like you and me, imperfect vessels to carry his perfect gospel to the world. But we know the kingdom is valuable. We know the kingdom is drawing. Look at the next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast in the sea and gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. They sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Now, now the parable goes on a little bit further. There's a little more there. But the main teaching of this parable is that the kingdom is drawing. So we have a kingdom that's valuable, we have a kingdom that is seeking, and we have a kingdom that is drawing. Can we be encouraged that the kingdom of God is at work around us no matter what we are doing? So, here's the question. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time today. How do we best position ourselves to be used for God's glory in his kingdom? Now, I'm going to warn you, this is not brain surgery. Somebody did, did Mark, did you do a, a series or, or do a message a while back that was titled that? It's not brain surgery? No? It was somewhere else I was. Somebody did, did one that was, that was titled that. It, if you've been in church any time at all, 
you know where I'm going with this first one. Turn to John chapter 15. And most of you right now know the way that I'm going to say that we position ourselves to be used for God, for his glory, in his kingdom, is by abiding, right? By abiding. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather and they, they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burnt. So, the first way that we want to position ourselves to be used for God's glory is through abiding. Now, what does that mean when we say abiding? What, what, is, what does that mean to us? How do you abide in Jesus? Now, a lot of times we think this is some kind of mystical presence thing, you know, that, that in our quiet time that somehow Jesus' presence comes over us and we have this warm, fuzzy feeling that's why we struggle in our quiet time. We struggle in our quiet time because those warm, fuzzy feelings don't always come, do they? Why is that? Because we live in a fallen world and there's outside influences and there's, there's bad things that happen and we face crises all the time. My wife asked me a while back when, when Rebecca got so sick, she said, why does God allow things like this? I said, because we seek him like no other time when we are in crisis. When we are in crisis, we will go to God when we may have been a little more distant. Man, that's a tendency of mine. As I get busy in work, I get busy in what I do, and I will lose track of that, that close relationship that I need with Jesus. You know what? I, I be, my be, abiding begins to slip. So how do we abide? It's not, it's not that, that hard. We abide in him by abiding in his word. If we do not abide in his word, we are not abiding in him. You know, there's a big discussion. There was actually a big discussion at a missionary meeting I was at. I was at a leadership meeting, and there was, a, there was this huge discussion, and I was just kind of standing on the edge as they were discussing this. How does God speak? How does God speak? And you know, on one end of the scale, now this, this, this goes a little even outside the missionary scale, the Southern Baptist missionary scale, that there is new revelation that there is new revelation from God outside of the word of God. And then on the other end of the scale is God only speaks through his word. One of the young guys came to me afterwards and he said, Jim, you didn't say much when all that discussion was going on. He said, man, where are you stand?" And I said, man, let me tell you something. I went through a little bit of history of my life and I said, I've been everywhere on that scale. I've been everywhere on that scale. You know, many years ago, I was, I was on the scale that there was revelation outside of the word of God. And then my pendulum swung to only, God only speaks through his word. And I said, I've centered kind of back out somewhere in the middle. Does God still speak to us like he did the prophets? Oh man, I wish he did. 
Wouldn't life be so much easier if he would just have a burning bush appear on the side of the mountain? Wouldn't it be easier if he would strike you blind on the Damascus Road or the road to Bolivar or the road to Joplin or the road to Rolla or the road to South Springfield? Wouldn't that make things much easier? That's not how he speaks to me. I certainly have thoughts that I believe come from God. Some of my thoughts are very easy to know they do not come from God. Some thoughts are a little tougher. We have to work through those and we have to, we have to determine what is God's will. How do we do that? We do it by this. If it falls outside of this, I can know it's not the word of God. It's not from God. That thought was not from God. You know, the, the prosperity gospel is taking Africa by storm. You go to a people who don't have anything, and you tell them God wants to make them rich. You tell a people who don't have any health care that God wants to make them healthy. Gosh, how are you not attracted to that? So that, that begins to crawl in, and even where we live up in the mountains, I'm beginning to see some influences of the prosperity gospel in, into the pastors that I'm training. And one of them was, was talking to me one day, and, and I'll get into just a little bit more of this in just a few minutes, but he was talking to me about how do, we, how do we know the difference, and I said, if it falls outside of this, then we need to be very, very careful. See, I don't care where you hit on this scale. I don't care where you hit. I don't care if you believe in revelation outside of the Word of God or whether you believe in God only speaking through the Word. I don't care where you hit on that scale. It's got to be tested by this. Because when you tell me God told you something, I don't know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But if he told you something outside of this, I'm going to say God didn't tell you. I'm going to say it might be something you want to do. It might be something you're attracted to. I had a man tell me, now this wasn't in Africa. This was when I was pastoring in America. I had a man tell me he had stepped out on his wife. And he told me, God gave me that woman. Gosh, man, that's outside the word of God. That is outside the word of God. That is not from God. So we must abide, and we abide in him by abiding in his word. Now, I want you to take very careful notice of verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in the wrong verse there. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I did a lot of research on that word, nothing. You know what that word means, literally? Nothing. It means zero. Nada. Zilch. However you want to put it, that's what it means. It means you can't do anything. Without Jesus. If you're, if you're not abiding in Jesus, Brother Mark can't grow our church. Church growth is not why we abide. We get a benefit when we abide of sometimes God growing the church. So we must begin by abiding. Secondly, look at verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear fruit, so you prove 
to be my, be my disciples. Second thing, first thing we have to do to position ourselves to be used for God's glory in his kingdom is we must abide. Secondly, we must be praying. We must be praying. Look, look at that verse again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, that prosperity gospel thing, that's, that's beginning to, um, you know, we call it the name it and claim it sometimes. I had one of my pastors tell me one day, you know, if we will just pray in the name of Jesus, God has to do whatever we ask. I said, oh, you think so? He said, yeah. Did you notice the context in this verse? If you abide in me, and I in you, ask whatever you wish. See, the context of the prayer in this verse is abiding. If we are not abiding, we will ask wrongly. So this pastor, I said, so you're saying that whatever we ask in the name of Jesus, because we've asked in the name of Jesus, God's going to do it. He said, yes. Half of being a missionary is being able to put something in terms where people can understand it in their culture. I said, okay, pastor, let me ask you a question. What if I ask God for your wife in Jesus' name? Got a funny look on his face, and he said, you can't do that. I said, why not? What if my desire is for your wife, and I pray and ask in Jesus' name to make her leave you and come to me? He said, you can't do that. I said, why not? He said, that would be against the word of God. Bingo. Bingo. We must ask out of abiding so that when we abide in Christ, we abide in his word, then our prayers are driven by our abiding. And we offer the word of God, what we've learned from the word of God, we offer back to God in his prayers. So we're asking things within his will so that he is granting according to his will. So we position ourselves by abiding. We position ourselves by praying. But there's a third thing. There's a third thing that we have to do in order to be used by God for his glory and his kingdom. And I'm going to tell you, this one's the toughest one. Abiding is tough sometimes, isn't it? Abiding is tough. Praying is tough sometimes. I want you to flip back to John chapter 12. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see that third thing we have to do? We got to die. We have to die to self. Now, that's the toughest one for us, isn't it? It's the toughest one for us. Why? Because we, well, let's face it, we're a selfish people. We live in a selfish culture. You know, I don't have to explain much to, the, to, to my pastors where I live on this verse. I can hold up a piece of corn. I say, what happens if you eat this? They say, that's all we get. What happens if you plant it? You know what they say? Ah, we get too much. We get too much if you plant it. So see, they understand the principle. 
Now, Jesus, obviously the context here is Jesus himself. Jesus is talking about his death. But he's taken his death, and he's used an agricultural principle that works no matter where you go, and it's a spiritual truth that also works in our lives. That if you, if you die to yourself, it's going to bear much fruit. Now, we're all here today because Jesus went to the cross, right? We're here today. If your faith and your trust is in Jesus, you are in this worship service today at Hamlin Baptist Church because Jesus died on a cross for your sins. You accepted that gift, you repented of your sins, and you committed your life to following Jesus. But Jesus didn't tell you the gospel, did he? Why do you do that? Because the guys who were listening to him say that died to themselves and said, and said, the gospel is more important than me. The gospel is more important than me. Now, I'm standing in a place today where I had to say that. You know, we were in a different building. But I had to say that. I can take you back to a Sunday at Hamlin Memorial Baptist Church on Atlantic Avenue. I was in the middle of a sermon when I had one of those thoughts. Now, most of the time when I'm preaching, I am very focused. I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm thinking about the Word of God. I'm thinking about what I got to say. But on this particular Sunday, God and I had a conversation. Well, actually, I had a conversation. God was pretty much silent while I was preaching. And from that conversation came I had to die to myself. When I sat in Richmond, Virginia with our candidate consultant, they called him then. I don't have no idea what they call him now. They've probably changed that name 37 times in the last 10 years. When I sat with a candidate consultant, he said, why are you leaving this church as your pastor? And I said, man, other than, than God leading me away, I said, man, most of the people like me. They don't laugh too much there. <laughs> Most of the people like me, and I said, it is a place where you could get very comfortable. It's just a place where I could stay there for the rest of my life. I could stay there to retirement, and I think most of the people would be happy with that. But I don't think that's what God's leading me to do. So you have to die to yourself. See, see, we want to find those places of comfort, don't we? We want to find those places of comfort, and we want to stay there. That's exactly what happened with Peter, James, and John on, on, at the transfiguration. You know, they saw Jesus transfigured before them. What does Peter say? Let us build three temples. Let's just stay here. Man, this is, we're, we're, we're on the mountaintop. Let's just stay here. Folks, I'm going to tell you, Hamlin could have been a place where I could have been very comfortable. But we've got to die to self. I went to a church planning conference. I got an email from my, from my boss that said, 
Y'all been worried about that? I got an email from my boss that said, church planning conference, these dates, you need to come. I sent him an email back. I said, hey man, I'm busy. You know, I got things scheduled during that time. And he sent me one back. I said, no, Jim, this is really important. You really need to come. I sent him one back. Hey, I'm busy. You know, I got this, this, and this schedule. This is what my schedule looks like. The next one that came back said, no, Jim, you are coming. Clear your schedule. Do whatever you got to do. You have to come to this church planning meeting. It's two weeks long. I'm like, holy moly. I got I to go to this thing. So I get there, and I am not happy. Y'all know missionaries have bad attitudes sometimes? I know pastors don't. But man, I didn't want to be there. I was there. They sat me at a table with a friend of mine who sometimes, well, a lot of times he can have a bad attitude. My wife says it's never good when me and him sit together. So we're both there, and neither one of us wanted to be there. And so we're going through the first two or three days, and like the second day, they begin doing gospel presentations. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We got missionaries here and we're doing gospel presentations? What, are, what, what is up here? Why are we doing gospel presentations? But see, I'd been in Lesotho for a while by that time. About year five in Lesotho, I thought, man, our gospel presentations, they, they just don't really hit where our people live. See, there's three basic types of cultures in the world. There's, a, there's a, a guilt and innocence culture. That's where we live. We live in America. We are a guilt and innocence culture. Now, side note, I think our culture is changing on how long we're going to be guilt and innocence. And I think our younger people are already not guilt and innocence. So I think our gospel presentations are going to need to change a little bit. Gospel never changes. But how we present the gospel can change. So we have to adjust that. So what I had seen is we, I was using a a guilt and innocence gospel presentation. I was using the Roman road. That's what I learned. I was using a guilt and innocence gospel presentation in a culture that was not guilt and innocence. See, guilt and innocence says you're guilty before God. You need forgiveness of sin. A lot of people don't think they're guilty. In fact, their culture says if no one saw you do it, it's not wrong. There's a whole lot of theological problems built up in that, right? Because they don't even believe God saw them do it. There's a second kind of a culture. There is, there is zero of that. second kind of culture is honor and shame culture. Think of the Japanese during World War II. It's more honorable to die than surrender. Think of the Middle Eastern cultures now. If you are, if you are a Muslim and someone in your family rejects Islam and accepts Christ, the only way your family can regain honor is you have to kill him or her. So that's an honor and shame. There's a little bit of that in Lesotho, but not a lot. It's a different kind of culture. It's called a power and fear culture. In a power and fear culture, there are things to be, to be feared, and there's power to be gained. And the more power you gain, the less things you have to fear. It's where all the charms come in. They give you power over whatever this thing is that you're fearing. So they're doing these gospel presentations. I had seen that our gospel pre presentation really just wasn't working. Now, in Lesotho, Lesotho has been known for decades, since 1987, as a graveyard for missionaries. 
People go there. They get sick. They get tired. They transfer somewhere else or they go home. It's been known as hard ground, difficult place to live, resistant to the gospel. And IMB was really happy. I mean, my first, my first five years or so, we'd had about 250, 300 people come to Christ, and they're like, man, you guys are doing great work. And I'm like, I can see it. We're just not getting it. We're just not getting there. We're not getting to where they live. So I began to look for different gospel presentations. I began to, to write some, and I would take them to the village, and I would try them, and they just weren't what I was looking for. I'd be all excited, and I'd tell Teresa about it. I'd be all excited about presenting it. I'd get back in the truck after we were living. I'd well, that wasn't it. I could just tell it just, it just didn't penetrate where they lived. It wasn't getting beneath their culture. So about day three of this church planning, this church planning meeting that I went to that I didn't want to be at, Lady stands up, she goes, and she's going to do a gospel presentation. She was actually doing, her husband had written it. There'd been 25-year missionaries in Zimbabwe. He had to fly home because his mother had passed away. So he was in the States at his mother's funeral. She was doing the gospel presentation. When she started, I said, ah, man, it's just creation to Christ reworked. I've heard all this. I've used that. It's not helping me. She got about three minutes in. And I flipped my notebook open and I started taking notes. And I still have that piece of paper, that original piece of paper, where I started taking notes and I have arrows and scripture written in the margin and arrows going to this side. And I started writing things down. I went back and sat down with some of my pastors. We changed a few things. One of the things we changed is I said, I said to my pastors, if there are four things in this culture that we struggle with that man didn't have that problem in the Garden of Eden what would they be? What do we struggle with now because of the fall of man? And they said we struggle with hatred. That's why they're always asking for love in the homes when you, when you ask for prayer. They said we struggle with slavery to sin because we had freedom in the garden I said okay what else we struggle with anger because we had peace in the garden and they said and we struggle with fear where before we had the power of God so we put those four things into our gospel presentation that because of the fall of man we traded our love for hate we traded our peace with God and our peace with, with each other for anger. We traded the freedom that we had in the Garden of Eden. You know, when you read that, that story in the Garden, there's only one sin. There's only one thing that they can't do. But that's the one thing that they're, that, that they're attracted to. So we, tr we traded that freedom that we had in the Garden for slavery to sin. Now, slavery rules our, now, sin rules our lives. And because of our sin, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we traded the power of God for fear. The first time I went and shared that, that um, the two kingdoms, I worked on it for a couple of months before I rolled it out. And we taught it to, to our nationals, we taught it to our team, team members. 
The first time I presented it in the village, one of my pastors was with me. We had 14 come to Christ the first time I presented it. We got back in the truck, the pastor closed his door, and he said, Intate Jim, that is the best gospel presentation I've ever heard. He said, I'll never use anything else. I went back to that same village the next week to start discipleship. They brought five of their friends, five more accepted Jesus whenever I presented the two kingdoms. You compare the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness and the results of each. And the two kingdoms has done more to spark questions, to get us into gospel, deep gospel conversations. And in the last two and a half years, it's about two years and seven months now, we've seen almost a thousand people come to Christ in Lesotho. Simply because in a meeting I didn't want to be at, I heard the speaker say this, sometimes our personal calling and giftings have to take a back seat to what God wants to do in his kingdom. Man, when he said that, I thought, ouch. Ouch. Because my personal calling and gifting is preaching and teaching the word of God. I think that's what I'm best at. It's easier for me to walk into a village and when I have believers come and leaders begin to rise up and they become, they become obviously the guy who's going to be the pastor in that church and I pull them aside and I begin to do training. It's much easier for me to just teach them than it is for me to teach them how to teach, which is something I don't think I'm that good at. But sometimes our personal callings and giftings have to take a back seat to what God wants to do in the kingdom of God. So we position ourselves by abiding, by praying, and by dying. But there's something else. There's a result. There's a result. Now, all three of those scriptures, all three of those passages that we just looked at in the abiding, the praying, and the dying passage, did you catch the purpose of all of those? Because the purpose is the same. The purpose is the same. In fact, in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, it's mentioned four times. Verses 6, 7, and 8, it's mentioned two more times. Now, that's known as the abiding passage, right? But the purpose is mentioned only one time less than abiding. And in John chapter 12, verse 24, it's mentioned again. Did you hear it? That you bear fruit. That you bear fruit. See, the purpose of abiding is not so we have a closer walk with Jesus. That's a benefit of it. The purpose of abiding is not growing our church. That's a benefit of it. The purpose of abiding is, is, is not so you become some kind of super Christian, whatever that would look like, since none of us have probably ever been one or seen one. The purpose of abiding is to bear fruit. The purpose of praying, according to John chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, is that we bear fruit. See, the purpose of praying is not so we get God to do what I want him to do. One of the things, since I've been in in Africa and seeing the way that they use charms, because they call that a manipulative. 
They buy the charm because they need God to do something. So we can't access God because remember, he's distant and he's uncaring. He doesn't care about us. So I need a way to get God to do what I want him to do. So I go to the Sangoma, the witch doctor, because I can't go to the ancestors. They believe the ancestors, they're basically universalists. They believe everyone, when they die, go to the presence of God. I need to access the ancestors so they can get God to do what I want him to do. Well, they're dead. Can't access them, so I need another mediator. So they go to Sangoma. He sells them the charm. The charm gives them the power to access the ancestors who then get God to do what I want him to do. You know, it's kind of the way we sometimes use prayer. We sometimes use prayer to try to get God to do what I want him to do. Now, that's a pretty arrogant position, if you think about it, that I would somehow know what God needs to do better than he does. That's why we need to be a body, so that we are praying from our body. Why? So that we bear fruit. So how do we position ourselves to be used by God for his glory and his kingdom? By abiding, by praying, and by dying. For what? So that we might bear fruit. Folks, if we miss that, if we miss that, we will spend a lot of time doing a lot of things and there will be no results. A lot of you will remember Doug Clinton. Doug came to Lesotho one time and we were riding on the long ride from Johannesburg to where we live in Lesotho. And Doug asked me this question. He said, Jim, I've got to ask you something. I said, what's that? He said, do you think I did a good job at Hamlin? And I said, Doug, a lot of us made a lot of mistakes at Hamlin. I said, let me tell you what I did. I said, I did the right thing many times for the wrong reason. He said, what do you mean? I said, I always did what I believe God wanted us to do. Every single thing that I did. I said, but sometimes I did it for the wrong reason. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, sometimes I did it because it just needed to be done. And I said, I think I moved too fast sometimes. When it had been a lot easier on everybody if I would have just gone a little slower. I hadn't been in Hamlin very long. We took a mission trip to Corpus Christi, Texas. Took a group of college kids. Some of you might have been on that. We went down there and, and they had a girl leading worship. It was kind of a small group. There were several churches down there, but we came together and there was a guy who shared a devotion every night and the girl just played the guitar and, and sang. And, you know, we didn't even have a computer. We had an overhead projector with the transparencies and she would slide that thing up there, you know, and we would sing. And I don't remember any song that she sang or any song that we worship to, but I do remember one line. And I'd been in Hamlin long enough that things, at that time, you know, it was right about that two-year mark, and we had an incredible first two years. Incredible time in Hamlin the first two years I was there. She began to sing this song, and this is the line. As I stand at the back, and I was just kind of watching, you know, all the, all the college students worshiping. I don't remember the tune, I don't remember anything else of the song but this one line. Burn all the kingdoms I have made that you might shine 
and I might fade. Man, I'm telling you, it's like somebody drove a stake through my heart. Because I ask myself the question, I ask God this question. Man, God, is that what I've been doing? Is that what I've been doing? Have I been building my kingdom and neglecting yours? So that's the question we need to ask ourselves today. How are you abiding? How are you praying? How are you at dying? Because God wants you to use you to bear fruit. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you again for the opportunity to open your word. Thank you for the privilege that you give us in this country. How you've blessed us. Lord, that every one of us can open a Bible today. Lord, thank you for the freedom that we have. We're not worried about people, people so much breaking in here and the government shutting us down. Thank you for the privilege that, that we have. So Lord, as we enter this time, just pray that your word would penetrate our hearts. And Lord, that you would use the people of Hamlin Baptist Church for your glory and your kingdom to bear fruit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.